We're going to continue in, the, in our theme of the resurrection. And um, if you have your Bibles with you, we're looking at Paul's um, teaching on that, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing, obviously, to the Corinthians, which is a Greek city. The Greeks did not believe in the resurrection. In fact, when Paul first preached the resurrection of Jesus to Athens, they laughed at him. They thought, who is this babbler that's just going on and on and on? It didn't resonate with their mind and with their thinking. In Corinth, many scholars believe that even within the Corinthian church, they didn't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. Is that hard to believe? That many people in the church may not even have believed in the resurrection of the dead and therefore may not even really believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul is writing into that situation and what he does is to say, look, I'm going to present you with three witnesses, not just to your mind, but to your spirit also. Three witnesses that will tell you that he has risen from the dead. So he starts his argument with this fundamental truth in verse 3. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Okay. So the first witness of this is the cross of Jesus. Now the cross of Jesus isn't just something that speaks into our minds, it speaks into our spirits and our hearts also. We don't need to turn to it, but if we were to go and look at the gospel accounts of the cross, you'll see that the last thing that is said to Jesus is mockery. In fact, the Pharisees and the religious leaders would shake their heads in derision and they would say to him, if you really are the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, then take yourself down from the cross. They mocked him. Even those that were being crucified with him, says Mark, mocked him as well. And then Jesus uttered these words, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit to the Father. But the first response after his death was not mockery. The first response after his death was by the Roman centurion who said, surely this man was the Son of God. That's the power of the cross. It's not a human thing. It's not a human argument. It's the power of his cross transforming and hitting our spirits. And there's a transaction that takes place that moves us and if we're going to share the gospel with somebody, we need to share the cross of Jesus Christ because it has the power of salvation within it. It isn't just an idea. It's more than that. It's something that engages people's spirits and hearts. 
How many of you know um, or've heard of Tony Campolo? Heard of Tony Campolo? You might know Tony Campolo. He's kind of he's, he's sort of he was brought up in Brooklyn, so he's got a, a hard-hitting American New Yorker, you know. So, and he quite he preaches a little bit like that too. He's, he's an evangelist, and he's sort of say, you know, Jesus is risen from the dead. Get over it. That kind of kind of that kind of you know <laughs> kind of message. And he was called. He was invited to preach at a church in um, Mississippi, in, a, in an African American church. And he was really, really late. And he was literally running down the road. And as he just ran into the church, he threw his coat and his hat at the guy that was the attendant. Um, and he just ran in, and he was kind of like coming, uh, coming through the church like this. Guy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he stood in front of the church, so sorry. <sighs> Guys, let's open the word of God together. And the pastor came up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, I'm so sorry, I don't know who you are. Wrong church. <laughs> and, um, and as he sat there, he decided he was too late for the other church. So he sat there and he listened to the singing and they started to sing an old slavery song. And he said that as they sang it, something, just something moved in his spirit. He could feel the Holy Spirit. He could feel the power of those words. The song is, where were you when they crucified my Lord? Do you know it? Where were you when they crucified my Lord? And he said there was something in that singing that as they started to sing about the cross of Jesus, the Holy Spirit moved and he felt, he's been a Christian for years. He'd been an evangelist for years, but something just arrested his spirit. He said, I started to shake in the chair under the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the cross of Jesus. And I suddenly realized that it was me that put him on the cross. And John Stott says these words. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. That's the power of the cross of Jesus that convicts people of their sin. And they recognize they need then to come to his salvation. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the power that transformed lives. He tried the human style of argument and wisdom, but they just laughed at him. But when he preached the cross of Jesus, people's lives were changed. He died to take away our sin. So for the Corinthians, the first proof of the resurrection was the cross of Jesus. And it was also evidenced in their transformed lives and their experience. They simply would not live their lives as they had done before, if they had truly grasped the reality of his cross. That's the first witness. The second witness is the scriptures. Now I want you to go back to um, that passage in Corinthians again. And I want you to notice a couple of times where Paul says, according to the scriptures. He says, verse three, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Yeah. 
This isn't just referencing back to the Old Testament. But it's about understanding the power of the scripture in transforming lives. It isn't enough just to offer argument. We've got to take people back to the word of God because it's the word of God that is living. It is a living word of God that can penetrate soul and spirit and divide it like bone and marrow. It's the living word of God that transforms us and there is no other way around it. It is the scripture itself under the spirit of God that has the power to recreate and transform lives. We see this at the beginning, of course, where the Spirit of God is, is hovering, if you like, brooding. And then the Father speaks. And when the Father speaks, the Spirit moves. The Spirit and the Word together are the creative power of this universe. And they are the recreative power of our souls and bodies. And so we've got lots of testimonies of people who have been touched by that. Now, one such person is David Lamb, um, a friend of ours and a friend of mine. Um, I've been meeting with David recently, and he's going to be coming and ministering to the church. He's a lovely man of God. He's a powerful evangelist who moves in the, in the things of the Spirit. He doesn't live too far away from us, actually. He ministers in Ashford. But he's a great man of God. He had a, it's quite a hard-hitting story, his conversion. He's very close to his older brother, his older brother was like a father figure to him and looked after him, took him under his wing. Was always strong, never seemed to have any weakness and was always there for David. And then quite suddenly his older brother took his own life. And David was really rocked by that experience because he'd never seen the vulnerability in him. That was always hidden and it really rocked him and shook him to the core. And he went off the rails a little bit. But he was conscious that there were some ladies whom his mum knew who just would refuse to stop praying for him. And they kept praying. And on one occasion, they gave him a Bible. I'm just going to read that to you. Sometime later, Joyce's mum came over to visit and presented me with a gift. The Living Bible. It was a new Bible translation. I was a bit shocked to receive it. I wasn't sure what I should do with it. But just to be gracious, I took it. I figured I could always ditch it later. But I never did throw it away. I wonder how many Gospels are in homes that never were thrown away. That night, back in my accommodation, I actually began to read it. This was different to the formal old-fashioned language of my Sunday school Bible. It was easy to read. In fact, it was quite riveting. In fact, that night, I read through the whole of Matthew and Mark's gospel before I slept. And the next morning, I started to read some of Paul's letters. Wow, he'd done some amazing things and he wrote in an incredible way. And one evening, Joyce and Debbie came to visit and they noticed the Bible on my bedside cabinet. Ah, so you're reading the Bible, are you? said Joyce. I could have sworn I heard an element of triumph in her voice. <laughs> oh, no, no, not really, I said as casually as I could. But the truth was, with four women praying for me, Joyce, Debbie, Deborah, and Joyce's mum, I really didn't stand a chance. And looking back on it now, I wasn't aware of their prayers at the time. But there's no doubt that through the Bible, I had an increased sense of God speaking to me. David later becomes 
a Christian through that experience of just reading the word of God. And then he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's a powerful evangelist. He's worked in four churches and he's doubled those churches. That's why I'm working with him. (laughs) And in one year he baptized 100 people. And we want to see that anointing, that anointed evangelist come and bring something to us that will help us to reach our community. Praise God. But it's the power of God's word. And I don't think there's a person in this room who could say that they came to Christ without at some point encountering his word or hearing the gospel or reading the gospel and knowing something about the written word of God. And so the second great witness to us is the word of God. You see, we can have all kinds of arguments, but we need to bring people into an encounter of his word. We need to read it to them or speak it to them or give them an opportunity to read it for themselves and pray for them so that his word becomes something that's alive in them. Now in John chapter 6, Jesus says this. He says, the spirit gives life, but the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and of life. The words I've spoken to you are full of spirit and of life. He speaks about how his blood and his flesh are the means by which we are sustained. And many of the Jews could not comprehend it. And in fact, many of them turned away at that time. And Jesus says to his disciples, do you want to leave me too? And Simon Peter answers him with these words, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And I think that's the power of his word that speaks into our spirits, not just into our minds, but into our spirits and arrests us and brings us into that relationship with God. The third testimony, if you like, that Paul writes here in this small passage of Corinthians is the testimony of believers. And we see it there in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, many of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, to one abnormally born, because he had seen Jesus as a vision. But there had been hundreds of people, not just a few, hundreds of people, who had encountered the living, resurrected Jesus. They could testify in their lives, through their lives, that they knew him, that they had experienced him, and they could testify that he was indeed alive, and all of us can. Jesus says through his servant John in Revelation, he says, you will overcome Satan by two things. Do you know what they are? You need to know. By the blood of the lamb and by what? By the word of your testimony. When you speak out what the blood has done for you, you defeat the enemy. He's got no answer to that. Utterly defeated. The power of testimony. Not only were there 500, there have been 
thousands and thousands and millions and millions of Christians over the centuries who will testify to the same thing again and again. I'm just going to read you one tiny extract. This is from um, Reinhard Bonke. Head of Reinhard Bonke? Yep. Uh, Reinhard Bonke. Now, you need to, if you ever read his um, autobiography, it's amazing because you'll see how God is working through his family. And um, this is a small extract about his father, Hermann Bonke, who was in fact a soldier in the Third Reich. He was a soldier during the Second World War and was captured by the British and put into a British prisoner of war camp near Copenhagen. And this is what he says. This is how Hermann experiences God. Across the empty barracks, he heard a door quietly open and close. Someone began walking softly across the floor. The flooring soft, soft woods creaked beneath every step. And Herman thought perhaps it was a British guard coming to check on him, or a doctor coming to see why he had reported feeling sick. He rolled from the bunk, and he stood up to face him. And to his utter shock, it was a man in white, wearing a seamless robe and Middle Eastern sandals. And he was smiling as he moved toward him, hands extended as if to embrace him. His hair was long, his beard was full, and when Herman reached out to take his hand, he saw it was torn completely through from the force of the Roman nail. Herman, I am so glad that you are coming, the master said, and then vanished. Herman fell to his knees. He could do nothing but weep for the rest of the day and night. How could the saviour be made glad by one so guilty? Returning to his bunk, he lay down, his soul overflowing with the peace of God that passes understanding. Until this moment, it has seemed inconceivable that an imprisoned soldier of the Third Reich could receive the smile of the Lamb of God, that the Saviour of the world would express pleasure in his desire to serve him as a minister of the gospel. The treasure of this encounter burned like a warming fire in his heart until the day that he died. It is the testimony of Christians through the word of God, often about the blood and about the, the cross of Jesus, that is the mighty power of God to bring about salvation of souls. And what Paul writes here, just in this little passage about the resurrection, and I encourage you to read more because it's a wonderful, a wonderful kind of treatise on the, on, the, on the whole subject of the resurrection, is that these witnesses, these proofs to our spirits and to our hearts are what will transform us.